talk about anything. Okay. Well, let's uh, yeah, let's talk about a little bit about your your background here because you some of the the other movies how you started was it with Trauma, right? Uh, yeah, I basically made a film and uh, sold it to Trauma, and then had a little gig with them on their TV show, and you know met a lot of great people through them, and you know it was a good experience. Yeah, you made this movie. Get, uh, ghouls is that that and you got a good re- you got a review in variety about that that was positive yeah no uh unspeakable was the film that i sold to trauma and then that uh my next film the ghouls uh basically got a great write-up in variety which led to you know a, a potential remake with weinstein and i mean <laughs> that's a whole other story but that went around for a while and uh you know the power of the pen you know or a good review can really uh, move things Oh, absolutely. Um, what was the thing about you got a rejection letter from Paramount? <laughs> well, you know, back in the day, you would basically make a film and you would submit it to, you know, everyone. So I, you know, submitted to, you know, Warner Brothers, Paramount, uh, 20th Century Fox, you know, just being a, a dumb kid with uh, there was back. It was a producer's handbook that had addresses to every distributor and company. So it was basically sending out VHS tapes of your film to the acquisitions team of every major studio, every distributor, Lionsgate to Troma to everyone. And then, you know, hoping for the best and getting a rejection letter from Paramount was a highlight of my career. <laughs> what? So you, you have it like framed or something? <laughs> it's buried somewhere in the, in the garage with uh, all my other junk that you collect over the years. You know, there was always the story of, you know, a filmmaker back in the day, they'd make this great film and they'd have like five hours of deleted scenes and, you know, and the negative in their garage and people would go, Oh my God, how could that get lost? And I'm like, well, pretty easily. Cause after so many years of collecting this shit, you kind of just lose interest in it and it just disappears or, or burns up or whatever it might be. So I could totally relate to how those great films have lost their footage over the years. You know, if just, you just get so much stuff that you can't really keep an eye on it anymore. Really? So do you have a lot of like cool, like old film props and stuff like that? Oh yeah. 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 Tons of stuff. Cause they're in this new movie that's called pig killer, which we get, we'll talk more about, but I just want like that just reminded me in that movie there. Well, there's a, co- <laughs> there's a couple props. There's the, the pig mask, which I was like, that thing is cool. Right. And then there's the dildo gun. Which yeah. apparently was like I read up on this. This this was a real thing. This guy. This is based on a true story, and this guy really did have like a dildo gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he had a dildo silencer on his uh, pistol, and you know he killed a couple of victims with it. It was one of those things of you know the true case facts of the case were you know more bizarre than anything I could ever think up. So that's why ninety percent of what's in the movie actually happened. And there's you know just. It's frightening. And, you know, the, the mask was kind of an embellishment of my nod to Motel Hell. So that was just one of the little things that I threw in there just because the visual is great, especially on Jake Busey with this big, big head. Yeah. So what did you do with those two props? Did you keep those? I, or something else No, I, I let uh, Joe Castro keeps those. You know, that's kind of the thing that with the deal we have, it's like he keeps all that kind of stuff. And then if we ever need it in the future, he's got it on safekeeping for us. Remind me again, who's, wait, who's Joe, Joe Castro does all the special effects and he created oh, okay. the, the pig mask and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So explain to the story, cause I don't know if I had ever heard of this story. Apparently this guy is the biggest, uh, most prolific serial killer in Canada. He's a pig. They call him the pig killer. Yeah. And, uh, he killed like 49 women and fed, chopped them up, uh, and fed them to his pigs. And then the pigs got 
ground up for meat and people ate them. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things with Canada, they kind of buried the, they kept the, you know, a lid on a lot of the press for it to leak out. It took, you know, decades for it to really get the full details of the case, but they kept it pretty hush hush because, you know, that stuff doesn't really happen in Canada. So they were good about keeping a lid on the uh, press and that leaking out. They, wait, they, they weren't, it didn't leak out from like the, the news or anything like at well, all. The news, you know, the news ran, you know, minimal stuff on it, but the whole case and the whole trial was very kind of hush hush. It wasn't like, you know, something here where it would be, you know, sensationalized for years, right. you know, the, and everyone would be, a, he'd be a household name. He's still kind of, you know, the only really way I found out about him, the producer Kate Patel grew up in Vancouver. So she knew about the case and knew about everything like that. And she brought it to me and then, you know, pitched it and, you know, it went from there, but I had never heard of him before uh, meeting her. How accurate is the, the film to the true events? Cause from what I read and then what I've watched of the movie, it seems to be pretty accurate. Yeah, no, I'd say it's, you know, 90% true. He threw the parties, he had concerts, he, you know, he had he picked up prostitutes and fed them in drugs and, you know, whatnot, injected windshield washer fluid into them, you know, kind of dope, dope them up to have their, his way with them, right, you know, kill them, then cut them up, feed them to his pigs and his cohort, Pat, uh, who played by Kurt Bonzel in the film, had the neck tracheotomy and all that stuff, all that it was actual stuff. The woman who escaped, uh, she was a combination of like two victims, one that got away and another one that didn't get away. So it was kind of combining those two actual victims. And, uh, you know, the mother being abusive and uh, the father, all that stuff is true. The, the sex part with the mother, I kind of embellished. Who knows? You know, you don't know whether that did happen or didn't happen. So I just kind of put that in there just because it's a visual uh, beauty of him <laughs> making love to uh, uh, Ginger Lynn. Yeah, that's, that was a crazy <laughs> scene. So what is, so the guy with the neck tracheotomy, what was wrong with his, his dick? His dick was like all deformed or something. It was, uh, that it was, it was, it was bitten off by a, a pig when he was uh, a kid. Is, so that was real too. Uh, the, <laughs> I think so. There was something he had some phobia with pigs. I knew, so I kind of embellished the biting the dick part. But there was he had some in the true case. He had something against pigs or didn't want to be near them. So I kind of assumed something tragic had happened with a pig. So I put that in. Okay, yeah. So the, the yeah, talk about these parties. He had this thing called the Piggy Palace Good Time Society, and he he actually registered it as like a charity with the Canadian government. <laughs> right. So yeah, he you know him and his brother got all this money because they started selling off large portions of their their farmland so they were instant millionaires so you know he not only had the you know kind of a, uh, a, um, a celebrity with these parties now that he could afford to you know f have concerts and have um you know drugs and, and women at, at his disposal so he kind of you know was just kind of an instant celebrity you know kind of a hick farm boy now had all this money and could play these weird <laughs> twisted games of his so it was kind of just you know uh, he would throw these parties and they called it the piggy good time society which was kind of i guess they would uh, get some tax discount or whatever it would be from the government and just another another thing that's just a weird just kind of colorful uh, uh thing to his character it's just so many <laughs> things that you couldn't really make up on your own you know well and how did all these people go to these parties and not realize this guy was nuts or they didn't see evidence of things. Well, I, th I think that's the thing, you know, on the surface, he didn't seem all that nuts. He was just, you know, kind of a smelly, awkward kind of guy, but you know, he must've still been, had some uh, 
charm or, you know, that was one of the things that's great about Jake. He's got a certain amount of charm. And even though he's doing horrible things, you're able to kind of, you know, get beyond that because he's so charming or funny or, you know, weird or whatever it might be. And, you know, people that Willie, the actual killer, gravitated, you know, to abducting and whatnot were, you know, fringe society prostitutes and, you know, forgotten, you know, women. So it's, it's an easy, and especially if you're feeding them drugs and heroin and all these things, it's kind of an easier thing to control them or to get them into your trailer and do unspeakable things to them. Yeah. And so I thought I read that the hell's angels went to these parties too. Yeah, no, I read that as well. And, you know, there was even a thing that Nickelback actually performed at one of the uh, <laughs> things is one of the, the rumors. Oh, great. That's more evidence for people to hate Nickelback. <laughs> exactly. That was, So is that what, because you, you have some musician that's there and the girl's all excited. Oh, you got this. And I was trying to figure out, is this, was this a real thing or is this a fictionalized part? Well, no, that's a, he's a real uh, musician, of course, Gerard McMahon. He, uh, was kind of a pop sensation in the eighties. And, you know, he did a, a, his most famous song, um, cry little sister in lost boys. Oh, love and he, he's just, you know, a friend of mine. And, you know, I approached him before I even started writing the script and said, Hey, look, this, this real life character had these parties going on and, you know, had concerts and, you know, different characters and seeing your music is correct to that period, you know, the eighties and nineties, would it be possible to use some of your songs and then also get you to perform in the film? And, uh, he was game for it. And that really kind of helped get the ball rolling, you know, creatively for the script to kind of be an inspiration of, you know, this music of the period and kind of the, the whole party angle and the concerts and kind of just help make it more, um, real to the period. So it's all- he actually, didn't he actually play at the, the piggy palace? Okay. Yeah. Cause I don't think I got to that part. I think it was like, I'm at the part where the girl's like, she's like, Oh, you're getting Gerard McMahon. <laughs> so is that, that is his music and on um, the soundtrack though. Cause I was yeah. trying to figure out this. I like the, the soundtrack. It's, yeah, his, yeah. it's his music. Okay. It's all his music. And you know, a couple other bands of the period that we, you, that he was able to get their music for as well to put in there in the soundtrack, but he performs in it. And so does uh Steve Hitzelberger of live Sh- loud sugar, which was again, a nineties band that, uh, you know, kind of fits the period. So, okay. So then how do you get Jake Busey? Cause he's, he's great in this. I love Jake. I'm a big Jake Busey fan from like his roles, the stoner and, um, PCU. I don't know. Right. 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 Yeah. He's, he's done so many weird roles and like, he's, he's perfect for this. Did, did he request to be in this or did you have to try to convince him? No, I originally, we, uh, I was in talks with Fred Durst playing the role and the, you know, what? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Fred wow. Durst, he's a friend of a friend and you know he read the script he loved the script and he's like hey let's let's make this happen and then i'm like well that's great and he's like i only i just want some changes in the script i want to take out you know that some of this penis stuff and you know all these other kind of things because of the you know the whole me too movement and i'm like uh no it's <laughs> you either you either commit to this 100 percent as is i mean i'm open to create you know collaborating and changing a few things but toning it down because of some bullshit movement i mean fuck you so <laughs> he he was gone and then you know my producer jeff olin suggested you know hey i'm friends with gary Busey's wife what do you think of jake getting the script to jake and see if he'd be interested and i said let's let's give it a shot and he sent it to her. She sent it to Jake. Jake loved the script. We made, we met up and, you know, he was great, you know, and okay. he was on board and we made it happen. 
I'm glad you didn't uh, sacrifice your creative integrity. I mean, <laughs> Me Too movement, I understand the movement, whatever, but it's this is about a serial killer. The guy didn't follow the rules. He also <laughs> murders people. Are you going to take out the murder and the rape? I mean, those are that's what he did. Like you're portraying the story as is. Yeah, no, that's the thing that can get, you know, you get so excited by like, oh, Fred Durst, this would be great. He would probably, he would have done the score. He would have, you know, there would have been just this great thing and we were talking about it. But then, you know, he says, you know, one thing of changing this and then this. And then I've, my experience is if you give even an inch of changing something so big like that, he would want to change everything all the way through. And then pretty much soon you'd be lose control and it would not be your movie anymore. And you'd be pulling your hair out and angry. So I, I, I decided to take the easier way. And Jake, you know, from the get was, you know, excited about the script, loved it, you know, and was just a joy to work with. Yeah, no, I, I think he does a good job of being portraying. So he's acting, obviously, I'm sure he's not that creepy in real life, but he's just such a good actor. Oh. Like he can be kind of weird, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no, he's, he's great all around. And uh, he really, you know, kind of just, you know, when you're shooting these things, you know, you got 12 pages a day and 10 days to shoot and you, you know, you get it done. And he was, you know, on the mark, you know, one or two takes and we got it and we move on, you know. Is it creepy or is it awkward like filming this stuff? Cause I mean, it's gotta be weird for, I know it's a, obviously it's a movie and it's fake, but it's still gotta be weird for the people involved. No, I think, you know, cause it's such a small crew and you know, it's, it's less, you know, there's, with him and the actor, it would be me, the DP, Ginger Lynn, and the sound guy. And so it would kind of be, even though it was a claustrophobic trailer, it still kind of gave them, um, the intimacy was kind of separated because we're kind of in the back, they're in the back of the tra trailer and we're, you know, catching this thing. So it wasn't really as uncomfortable as it might sound. You know, they had kind of the freedom to do what they want. And if it did get uncomfortable, all they had to do is, you know, scream and we would, you know, figure something else out, but you know, everyone was game and seemed to have a good time. Yeah. How much research did you do on the true story? I mean, obviously you've read some, did you read like books? Did you interview people or how deep did you go? Um, when she mentioned it, you know, the, 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 the idea, I went home and I watched a couple documentaries and then I read up as much as I could find on the internet. And then, you know, kind of took, you know, I knew that he grew up on a pig farm and I knew that, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I was able to kind of mirror my own growing. I grew up on a farm as well in the Midwest. And, you know, we had pigs and we had horses and all that kind of stuff. And I was, you know, kind of a, uh, a loner. So I was kind of able to understand and get into Willie's head of seeing I kind of grew up in a similar, similar situation. And, you know, instead of killing people, I make movies. So, you know, as long as you have a creative outlet to, for your demons, you you know, you'll be okay. And obviously Willie didn't have a, a creative outlet. Right. Yeah. So what's weird too, is that uh, the story from what I understand is that it says he's available for, or he can get parole after 25 years. You can get parole after you're a serial killer. I've never heard of this. Is this a Canadian thing? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's how they roll up there. <laughs> No, well, he was only convicted of second degree murder on two victims. So, you know, I guess it, it makes sense for their uh, thing. <laughs> so, like, do they fi find like the uh, uh, driver's licenses and stuff in the trailer? Is that how they suspect that he killed those people because they found the driver's license? But there's yeah. no evidence of the body because, like you said, like, I think he grounded up and they either fed it to the pigs or insects or like it decomposed naturally where there's like nothing left. 
Yeah, I think that's the whole thing. If they didn't find the bodies, they have no case. So they were able to, they possibly just found the DNA of maybe those two victims. And that's how it kind of worked out. That's crazy. But he confessed to some of it, right? Well, he confessed, you know, like the video, when you see it at the, after the end credits, there's a a scene that's actually verbatim of what the undercover police officer recorded with him. I won't give that away, but that's, you know, watch the whole thing until the end credits. There's like an extra scene with James Russo in it and it's great, but that was actually taken verbatim of what the undercover police officer said to Willie that got, you know, helped get him convicted. Was it, is it hard to get the rights for something like this? Like, how does that work? Because it is this guy's story. Do you have to have people sign off or like, how, I mean, no, I, you, you know, if, if they're, you know, famous like this and this famous case, you're able to do a lot. And I also changed the names and the spelling of some of this stuff. So that gives you even more, uh, legal freedom without, you know, cause anybody could sue anybody, but it was one of those things. The, the producers were like, just change the last name or change the spelling or whatever. So it gives it a more of, um, uh, a blanket of us not being sued. So that was kind of the way I went. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Cause that would be something that would worry me doing a movie like that. So you don't need to, you don't need to like get the right, or I guess if somebody had written a book and you, it was based on the book, but you're just taking the story in general and just making your own. Right. Like, you know, they make, you know, Richard Speck and, you know, uh, Ted Bundy movies all the time. So I, I think it's just it, it, it's kind of or you can, you know, make fun of the president or put a president and the famous people to whatever degree you're able. You have a freedom to use them uh, a fair use, I guess it would be called. In the OK. Yeah, I think that's how I get away with putting some th- pictures and video clips as long as it's like I'm commenting about it or something like that. Right. 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 Spoof. So, yeah, you because you have some uh, you have some dark humor. In this too, which is like kind of weird. I mean, some of it, like the dildo gun, like, I mean, that's actually being accurate. So I guess that, I mean, that is, but it is kind of funny. And there's other like little like things that you do that are just, they're kind of like humorous. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, if you're going to make go this dark and this, you know, uh, perverted, there should be, you know, lighter moments to kind of carry you through. So it's not a complete slog of depression of, you know, seeing this guy, you know, there has to be a certain amount of charm to him and the humor and, you know, kind of to carry you through. And that was kind of my, and, and to me is a lot of it is just, you know, I, I, I write it and film it and kind of go with a gut instinct. So if it feels light or it comes out and it works, then I usually go with it. It's not just being stuck to uh, one, whatever the script might say, you know, I'm open to once the actors get there and they play it out. Sometimes it works dark. Sometimes it works funny. Sometimes, you know, you kind of see how it rolls and I'm open to, you know, creatively kind of going whichever works best for me. Yeah. This seems to be your highest rated uh, movie on IMDb for whatever that's worth. Like, so it seems (laughs) like it's getting good. (laughs) Well, you know, like they're not real kind to the trauma films and stuff, but sure, sure, sure. But this this one is a little bit. I feel like it's like. Is this your best film? You feel like? Uh, it's right up there. You know, I really you know had a great time doing it, and uh, everyone uh, was a blast to work with. And uh, you know, that's all I can really. They're all different, and you know, sometimes one hits with an audience. One times they don't. They you know the thing is is uh, as many people see it is always the greatest thing, and you'll always get someone calling it the worst film ever made, or someone will say it's the best film ever made. So you you know it's you take it all with a grain of salt. Do you feel like you you get better as a filmmaker the more movies that you make? Oh yeah, you know you just you learn from your mistakes and you learn you know. But you know sometimes you know a story clicks. 
and you know an actor is right for it you know sometimes you make these things and you everyone's great except that one guy or that you know it, there's something in it that's off and it's not firing on all cylinders whereas you know pig killer kind of clicked you know all the way through you know from filming to editing to you know as we're talking now so it's one of those things that i think has probably the best also marketability with the whole true story angle and you know that his crimes were so you know uh, bizarre it, it really helps the marketing and it helps you know and the distributors so far is doing a great job of really you know setting up these interviews and getting it into theaters and you know putting out uh, you know the best version of it possible so it, it's exciting yeah how how will you uh, distribute it so you said theaters will, will it be on streaming and if so which streaming yeah, it opens up theatrically on the 17th at select theaters, and uh, then it plays um, streaming on the 21st everywhere. And then uh, Blu-ray and DVD from Vinegar Syndrome on December 26th. So when the streaming, you'd have to pay for it. Though. It's not like going to be like free on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. Um, I think they try to do the Netflix and you know Hulu deals. All that stuff has become so... You know, they're making their own crap, so they don't really pick up that many independent stuff. But if they do, you know, they the distributor tries to get it on there. But it'll eventually hit Tubi and whatever after it does its initial run on the pay for or streamings. Okay, yeah, because like I think Amazon Prime, I think they're more open. They have a lot of, of more indie movies and stuff like that. Yeah, and they pay like a penny an hour. Is that <laughs> like what it is? Is it really that bad? When these SAG idiots run about whine about their stupid strike and all this crap, you know, know that the filmmaker makes this stuff and they, you know, bust their ass and the actors do as well. And then it gets out there. But, you know, Amazon or these things only pay you such a fraction of money. So residuals, you know, trickle down to me to, you know, a couple cents here. So when you cut that up, it's even less to an actor. So it's, it's, it's hard to point fingers at, you know, things, but I would say, you know, Amazon is really one of the worst, you know, when it comes really, to that's interesting. Cause that, they have the, the most money I thought I would think, or they have a lot. I mean, they, that's how they have it, I guess. Well, his wife has like half of it now. It's just, <laughs> that's but, true. Yeah. Well, that's it. So like, it's better to get a producer credit. You, yeah, you help produce this one too, then I'm assuming. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I, it's me and I'm, Robert Miano and Robert Ryan and Jeff Olin and Kate. And, you know, we kind of all pool in the and split up the producing duties and do it. But, you know, I usually sell my films. So I work as a, a sales agent as well. So I broker the deals with the distributor and all that kind of stuff. You know, after so many years of doing this and, you know, learning from trauma, the <laughs> rights and wrongs of deal making, it helped me kind of be able to make some really nice deals on these films and at least get it out there, get it seen and have some money coming in to pay the people who worked on it. So what, yeah, what have you learned? If you could share that with my, if somebody wants to make a movie, what are some mistakes that they should avoid? Well, the mistake, a lot of people think, you know, they get these sales agents to sell their films abroad and to try to get them a deal with, uh, you know, us distributors and whatnot. And these guys usually take, you know, 25%. And then they also charge like a 50,000, $25,000 fee to take it to, you know, can and to AFM and to do all this stuff when you really don't need to go <laughs> that route, you could do it yourself and, you know, find a distributor and see if they like it. And if they like it, you, you know, broker a deal, not only for the U S but also for foreign. So they're doing the foreign sales and you have a non-exclusive on the foreign. So if they're doing a shitty job selling it to all these different countries at AFM and you're able to say, okay, I'm going to go find someone else to do that. Or I'm going to do that myself. I, you know, there's a great company in Germany. I'll call them up and say, Hey, do you want to take a look at the film? 
we love the film. We'll give you this much. So you're able to kind of bypass a middleman, save a 25% cut and kind of, you know, do it yourself. But, you know, the devil is in the details with these contracts because a lot of them have so many little hidden things of, you know, they charge a fee for this or this and this. So it's just really kind of after you've making enough films and looking at so many different contracts that you're able to kind of, and knowing what you can get taken out and what they're bendable on um, in, as far as terms is really the key of getting a good deal. No matter how good the distributor is, if your deal is shit, the, you know, it's not going to get anywhere. But if you have a good deal and they put a modicum of uh, effort in releasing it, uh, you're going to do okay. Yeah. I think I heard you talking about like for um, most of the, your films, you know, you convince the producers to sign on and that they usually at least make their money back and hopefully more. And then especially as time goes on, the, the there's royalty credits, right? Yeah. And if you, you know, if you keep the budgets low, you know, under, you know, 200, you're usually, you're okay. Going over $200,000, you better have a name that's marketable overseas and all this stuff because it's, it's just this day and age, it's hard to make that back. Yeah. So what is your uh, goal? Do you have another project already lined up after this one? Yeah, we're shooting uh, another H.P. Lovecraft film, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, in December with Eddie Furlong, Bai Ling, Jake Busey, Robert Miano, Susan Prever, you know, uh, Ginger Lynn. <laughs> so. Eddie Furlong? Okay, I was, I was a big fan of his, Terminator 2. That was, oh, that he's was... great. American History X is... Yeah, know, that one too. Even Pecker with... Uh, yeah, Pecker's great too. Yeah, he's done some great... Yeah, he kind of disappeared for a while, so he's doing okay then? Yeah, no, he's doing great. And, uh, you know, he's the lead of the film and, you know, it should be fun. Okay, awesome. Well, I have to come back and uh, promote that when it comes out. For sure. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this, and uh, we'll get this out soon. People should. Right. And the movie comes out again the seventeenth. You said theaters. Seventeenth uh, th theaters, and then twenty-first uh, uh, streaming, and then December twenty-sixth uh, Blu-ray. Awesome. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the full podcast episode. Please help support our guests by following them on social media and purchasing their products, whether it be a book, album, film, or other thing. And if you have a few extra dollars, please consider donating it to their favorite charity. If you want to support the show, you can like, share, and comment on this episode on social media and YouTube. And if you want to go the extra mile, you can give us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Finally, make sure you're subscribed to the show on YouTube for the video versions and other exclusive content. We appreciate your support. Have a great rest of your day and shoot for the moon.